Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Let's get started uh, a minute early. I think oil and gas pricing is not determined by the war in the Ukraine, but it certainly has an impact. And it has an impact on natural gas because Germany and all of Europe will never, never, never pull the dependent on, on Russia for their gas, even if even if there's a ceasefire, negotiated ceasefire, and things quiet down in the Ukraine. So that means that the next four or five LNG export facilities will move forward because European utilities will commit to buy LNG from the U.S. So that's good for natural gas, but it doesn't explain natural gas trading for eight or nine dollars an MCF. In a uh, you know in a shoulder month, in other words, between the winter demand and the summer, you know, winter demand for heating and the summer demand for cooling, it's just the whole country has gotten short power. I don't know whether it'll last, but part of it has to do with the Biden administration being completely committed on energy to transition. And the problem is that wind and solar projects that were supposed to be built are not getting built. And they inherited a situation with China where that is where most of the solar panels come from. And there's a tariff on those, which I think imposed before Trump came and became uh, president and continued by Trump. And there's this litigation going on because what the Chinese manufacturers have done is move the uh, panels to Vietnam or someplace like that. And rep- then representative has come from Vietnam, not from China. And there's some litigation on that in front of the Commerce Department. And that's really holding up as increased the cost of putting in solar. So all these solar projects, which utilities committed for, are not going forward because the developers don't can't do it. I mean, they signed up for power prices that are way lower than what they need in order to pay for the increased cost of solar panels. So we have a kind of a situation where the result of this is going to be coal plants are going to run longer. I don't think that people will have the courage to build new gas capacity. Power is just going to be very expensive. The way to think about it is power, wholesale power has run, you know, like three cents per kilowatt hour. It's now nine or 10 cents. And roughly speaking, natural gas will pretty much trade on top of power prices. So nine or 10 cents or eight or nine cents per kilowatt hour power is going to work out to be eight or nine dollars per MCF for gas. That's had a huge impact on Antero, EQT, Southwestern. You know, all the public gas companies, positive impact. And, you know, I, I get some of that may, may continue. If a ceasefire uh, happened in the Ukraine, I think even though these LNG projects are still going to go forward, 
it definitely would have an impact on power pricing in the U.S. just because, you know, people would start to question why power and natural gas prices were so high. I think the same is true for oil. It turns out, reading Platts this morning, Russian oil exports, you know, Russia produces, I mean, about 10 million barrels a day. Three large producers are Saudi Arabia, around 10, and us a little more than 10 in Russia. And, and that the three of us produce about 30% of world's oil production of around 100 million barrels. The uh, Russia production has not been curtailed so far by more than about a billion barrels a day. And the Russian oil minister said that it, it, in June, some of that million barrels a day is, is going to be restored. Now, in the headlines is that the European Union, after a lot of back and forth, has decided to embargo Russian oil unless it's through a pipeline. So that will be, you know, two thirds or more of what uh, what Russian oil production or uh, products production, especially distillate, coming into Europe. But that oil will move somewhere else. I mean, they'll go to India, they'll go to China, and already cargoes from West Africa being redirected to Europe. So it'll all get straightened out. And I, don't think that while there are these estimates that oil pricing is going to go even higher, chances are uh, it'll it'll you know kind of not be too much higher than it currently is. Absent some macro event uh, like Saudi Arabia getting bombed or that kind of stuff. So that that's the story on oil and gas. Who knows about the Ukraine war? You would think it would be in Russia's interest as well as Ukraine's interest to, to just put the thing on hold and have a, you know, kind of split up Ukraine. But so far, that hasn't happened. On the uh, capital market, the Fed is finally going to start reducing its balance sheet. Very disappointing. In, I think, December minutes, they said it'd be $95 billion a month. And... What they've announced now is it'll be $30 billion a month for the first quarter, in other words, June, July, and August. So it is disappointing that what runoff means is if you don't reinvest the interest coupons or the, or the maturities. And so they said that runoff is $95 billion a month, but they're only going to reduce the balance sheet $30 billion a month for three months. It, I spoke to Mike earlier. It's possible that the economists at the Fed use a uh, inflation statistic that's not the CPI, the wholesale price index. It's, I think it's called the PC for personal consumption expenditures. And it's running a couple of points low. In other words, when our consumer price index is eight plus, it runs about six. Conceivable that the Fed economists are seeing the possibility of that number getting down to the significantly lower, like maybe four, four and a half percent by the time we get to September, October. And remember the Fed was trying to get to at least 2% inflation for the whole period since the Great Recession in 08, or what the, you know, they called the Great Recession, because <laughs> it was the biggest recession since the Depression. But since the very sharp recession in 08, it, they had a heck of a time getting they, they're more worried about deflation than inflation. So trying to keep get the economy to have 2% inflation, they 
they did during that period say that if inflation started to run over 2%, they'd let it run over a bit under the theory it'd run under. It'd run at one and a half or something. So they'd let it run at two and a half or three for a little while. Conceivable, if no, no one wants to say inflation is transitory. They all got trouble saying that last summer and early fall. But it could, it's conceivable that the Fed economists think that that PCE, which is the inflation indicator they have the most confidence in, will get down around four. Well, four, you know, if it did from six, then uh, May would, would be on its way to three, which would be acceptable. I'm I, not predicting anything, but, you know, when you look at their decision-making, you have to think, what are, what are they possibly saying that uh, would cause them to not go into full runoff? Mike asked a good question this morning. He said, well, is it important to the Fed to have get the uh, Fed balance sheet down to $4 trillion, which is where it was before the pandemic, before they did quantitative easing after 08, it was only one and a half or two. So is it important to get it down? Absolutely, it's important to get it down. Why is it important to get it down? Because that's the thing, as the, as the Fed showed in the pandemic, the Fed can do to rescue the economy. It was $4 trillion before the pandemic. Remember in March of, of uh, 2020, when it looked like the whole country was going to go into lockdown, the capital markets basically started to stop operating. The Fed came in with all that liquidity, and that's what held things together. So it's very important for the Fed to be able to do that again. It's a lot easier to do that if you get the Fed balance sheet down so that you're better able to go up the next time you have a kind of a problem. Well, hopefully, Let's say in the optimistic scenario, way optimistic scenario, that they get the PCE down to four, four and a half percent by September. Hopefully, they'll just continue in a maybe in a not ninety-five billion a month, but maybe more than thirty billion a month. Continue to keep the Fed balance sheet going down. The one thing about the economy, and especially as it affects the companies we invest in at Yorktown, there is no labor. You want to put a new drilling rig out or a new frack crew, you can't do it. You can't find the people. It doesn't matter what you're willing to pay them. So I was telling Mike this morning, you don't see anyone arguing for a federal minimum wage of $15. I mean, at any job, you're talking about paying 18, 20, 22 plus a signing bonus. And, and you're probably getting someone um, who's already employed to switch over for a better rate or better, better, uh, better health benefits. Now, is it the case? I mean, if you spend too time, too much time watching Fox the commentators, they'll say, "Oh, well, it's all these people are, you know, still at home, still out of labor force." And you know, some of that may be happening, but it the difficulty in filling jobs suggests that we're just in a different phase. I don't know whether it's the birth rate or COVID having people giving people a chance to work on a consulting basis at home or, or, or make money trading cryptocurrency. I don't know what's going on, but this labor shortage is going on and it's been not probably getting a little worse rather than a little better. So that there definitely is a change in our economy. And that I think is why some commentators, what the most widely quoted has been Larry Summers, a former treasury secretary, saying they're going to have to, the Fed's going to have to bring this to a full recession in order to change. I'm hoping that that's not true, that, that you know, there can, 
not just be a soft landing, but have a situation where the Fed balance sheet comes down in a sensible way and the economy continues to be pretty strong. And to the extent that oil prices and gas energy prices and food commodities are elevated, obviously food commodities are elevated because Ukraine produces so much, and, and Russia together produce so much grain. The market has a way of settling these things, and hopefully that's what we're going to see as we uh, move through the summer and, and into the fall. And with that, the optimistic assessment, Mike as an uh, investor is spending time on macro stuff as well as sorting through chip companies and software companies and other sectors of promising industries. I just can pause for a second and see if uh, Mike thinks I've uh, misstated anything or omitted anything. So over to you, Mike. No, I mean, my main point about uh, does it matter how big the Fed balance sheet is, is because in some sense, you could say the Fed might have gotten a little bit complacent with the size that it was post-global financial crisis. So why why not have the baseline be $9 trillion? <laughs> um, I obviously don't think that that's correct. At, at some point, there are issues that arise, like inflation, which we're dealing with today. The other thing that I think is interesting and worth pointing out is just that everything the Fed has done as far as an action versus what they've talked about has sort of um, made you think that they actually do believe that inflation is transitory. And that, and I'll include the chart of the PCE in our email this week, because you're right, it paints a slightly different picture than what we're seeing in the CPI data. Mike and I, and this is mostly unrehearsed, are going to venture out onto very thin ice the software companies are doing well, and we'll certainly get back to software. The chip companies are doing well. Taiwan Semiconductor, NVIDIA, there's still probably not a case for Intel. AMD's doing well. Salesforce is doing well. Snowflake is getting down. So I think it actually traded below the IPO price, which is important. Got to keep an eye on Snowflake and Microsoft. Mike and Jason are spending time pulling uh, Amazon apart because, of course, it's down, you know, with flat last year, it's down 30%. So we have all that going on, and we're going to get back to that. But we have spent time, and we've described some of the activity in prior Wednesday calls on batteries. And the uh, batteries are, let's leave out the electric toothbrush and the iPhones that we all carry. Let's talk about two types of batteries, which are going to require a lot of manufacture and a lot of uh, raw materials. Let's talk about batteries for cars. and Let's talk about utility scale batteries. Let me just speak to utility scale batteries because I have some experience with that because uh, Yorktown's been investing in utility scale batteries for three or four years now. It's difficult. Uh, the The problem with selling things to utilities or through utilities to the customers is it's pretty low return business. Basically, utilities rely on on getting rates set so they recover their costs, and so they'll they'll recover. You know, let's say they convince their utility, their regulator, that it's half debt and half equity, so they recover their 
debt cost plus interest and then maybe a 10% return on equity. Well, when Mike and I, both, whether we're in my case talking about private companies or both talking about public companies, we're not interested in 10% returns. We want to average 15%. We want to kind of compound the money. We want to double every five years, which is 15% return. So being into your totally scale batteries has a disadvantage if you're in a regulated environment and the returns are single digit, high single digit rather than you know, mid teens, which is where we want to try to concentrate. So that brings us to car batteries. Everyone uh, in the car business is going to do uh, battery cars. I mean, folks fly on BMW, Mercedes, Ford, GM, but the leader in it is, is Tesla. Now, Tesla is probably not investable because they are they are too expensive. They're billion shares outstanding, trading for seven hundred dollars or so. That's seven hundred billion. But I hope that I can get everyone on the phone to get two things on Tesla. One is the 10Q for March 31, and the other is the slides that they put out and and their press release when they announced earnings. They have one slide presentation that goes on for 150 slides. That's not worth getting hold of, but the slides when they announce earnings, the text and the slides when they announce earnings are pretty good. If you look at the comparable for Ford and GM, one interesting phenomenon is Tesla balance sheet cash flow statement is in much better shape than either Ford or GM. Tesla effectively has no debt. Tesla is generating cash flow. In other words, cash flow, even less capex, is, is around and the first quarter was $2 billion. Tesla was operating in the first quarter with only two of its factories going, its original factory in California and its factory in Shanghai. Although, you know, you started in the first quarter to run into all these lockdown problems in China. They have another fully open factory about ready to start producing vehicles outside of Austin, Texas. And then they have another fully built factory outside of Berlin in, in Germany. So we're going to see a lot more cars from Tesla. Um, if you think about who can do batteries better, um, and because the two leading battery manufacturers originally, the original Tesla batteries were built in Nevada in a factory that says Tesla on the roof. That's not a Tesla factory at that point. That, that's a Panasonic factory. And so Panasonic at one point had the best lithium battery technology. And then I think LG Chem in Korea caught them. But now the best battery technology and economics and whatnot is in CATL and BYD in China. And Tesla is very close to those two entities. And probably that's one of the reasons they decided to put a, a factory in, in China uh, to take advantage of that position they have with those two battery manufacturers. I'm going to stop here and turn it over to Mike because before I started to get up the curve on Tesla, Mike made a couple of good points to me about how much progress Tesla made actually manufacturing the cars and, and also chips. But over to you, Mike. Yeah. So 
as far as manufacturing goes, I think they, what they've done as far as automation within the factory and then scaling up the size of everything in order to reduce the complexity of the cars is actually really fascinating. The best thing I could recommend you do if you want to get an idea of it is check out the video that they do on the, the new factory in Texas. You'll see that the body panels and there's a tons of content on the internet about the design of the Tesla Model Y. The latest version of the Tesla Model Y has really minimized the number of pieces that need to go together. So they're actually really developing a distinct advantage versus the other automakers in producing a vehicle. And it's starting to come through and trickle down into the gross margins. I, believe they have the highest gross margins of any automotive manufacturer, including Ferrari, who you would expect to have higher margins, right? And like Hansenas, they've got three new factories coming online. We'll see a lot more vehicles coming out of, of Tesla. They have a goal of doing 20 million units a year, which is pretty incredible considering they did 1 million last year. So I think that's really interesting. I think that when we did the analysis on battery manufacturers, we came to the conclusion that CATL was the best, but it is a relatively low margin business. And the, the only things that we really found interesting on batteries were actually the suppliers of equipment to the battery manufacturers. And they have some crossover lot to semiconductor capital equipment. So that's where we actually got invested and interested. As critical as batteries are, it, it's really going to be just a few players and it depends, like for CATL, be able to commit whole resources to a company. It has to be somebody like BYD or Tesla, who is basically giving them guarantees to scale up the operation. I don't think they end up capturing quite as much margin as it, as Taiwan Semiconductor, for example, in this particular case. So I, I'll pause there. And, and, and Mike, yeah, Mike, Mike made an interesting point when we were talking this morning. The automobiles have been beset by chip shortages. But the interesting thing about Tesla, and it's true of Amazon and Google and Apple and Microsoft, is they're now designing their own chips. So Intel almost had to go to being a foundry like TSMC because, you know, it, 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 as Pat Gelsinger says in his interview, which I recommend, they got a couple of interviews on Bloomberg. But these companies are of a size where, and he can speak from experience developing a new chip. Uh, in fact, says any one of these people can take 200 really good engineers and put them, putting them to designing a chip. And in fact, Amazon for their service, for their service centers, Amazon and, and Google and, and, and Microsoft, they do design, I don't know what percentage of the chips that go in the, in the servers or server farms or designed by them, but Tesla does the same thing for the car. So Tesla, you know, had a few supply issues, but way less than the other manufacturers. And, but that's, that's Mike's area of expertise. Uh, one of his areas of expertise over to you, Mike, on Tesla and chips and doing their own designs. Yeah. You're seeing, you're seeing more demand for highly specialized chips. The, the days when Intel just sold blanket server chips to big data centers are gone. And part of that is because the way 
cloud compute's being sold and packaged so that people can build applications on top of it is changing. And it's changing so that it becomes more efficient. It's no longer necessarily that you just rent one server or two servers or 500 servers inside of a data center. It's more you design an application and maybe there's some abstraction that happens in between you and the server and your application and the server that kind of decides on what the resource allocation is. Amazon refers to that as microservices. It's also referred to as virtualization. So there's a, there's a lot of stuff that sort of happens in the background and it nets out as a win for everybody. Uh, the developer ends up getting uh, higher reliability, lower cost, Amazon or Azure, they're able to better monetize their servers. As far as Amazon designing their own chips, it's no surprise that they went with an ARM-based server. And that's really important because ARM-based server chips, though relatively new, are going to become a much larger piece of the data center compute stack. Uh, currently, the majority of data center CPUs are x86. Going forward, you're likely going to see a lot more of these chips that are lower power draw because of the long-term cost benefits versus running an x86 chip. So you'll see a lot more competition both for AMD and for Intel. Uh, those, those were the two suppliers of x86. And, and a user like Tesla is going to design their own chip. So, you know, one of the, one of the things we have to come to terms with is with NVIDIA which designs chips or uh, Qualcomm, which designs chips is, are you, are, are you going to be able to design something that, that the data centers aren't filling a requirement with they design themselves. And of course, this I think becomes an argument for, uh, I want semiconductor probably more than Samsung. Because uh, Samsung's so heavily involved in memory chips, but you know this is a this is a, this is the way that the industry is trending. I I think Pike Gelsinger is the new CEO of Intel on the right track, but then the question is, can they do it? And I think for next week we will continue to focus. Now at seven hundred dollars, Tesla is too expensive. Even at four hundred dollars, that would be four hundred billion. Let's say that. 10 billion of free cash flow, which is, seems to be the rate they're on. As Michael said, they kind of do 10 billion of free cash flow with a million cars. If, if, if they were able to go to 10 million cars, forget 20 million cars and keep their cash flow margin, theoretically the 10 billion would become a hundred billion. If, if a hundred billion on a company with no debt trading at 700 billion, that's cheap. I mean, seven times free cash flow is cheap. One way or the other, Michael and I are going to continue to focus in on Tesla as well as other businesses. One of the advantages, of course, of a weak stock market, you know, if the Fed overdoes it or, you know, we have more COVID or more potential lockdowns like China's gone through and the equity market gets lower, one of the great advantages of that is if you have something you want to own, but it's too expensive. Sometimes the market uh, takes care of that. And with that, I think we've run through our time. Everyone, uh, stay safe, stay, stay healthy, and we'll be on next one trip. 
Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.